We tend to want certainty so deeply, but oftentimes it's certainty and our desire to get it uh, and propose it that ends up leading us into all of these many different problems. Think about uh, Thomas. People will typically go and say, oh, well, look at Thomas. He's gone ahead and doubted. You know, he's, he said, I, I won't believe unless I touch it, right? His problems doubt. He should have trusted. It's actually not really the issue. It's not that Thomas was doubting. It's that Thomas demanded something, certainty. Welcome back to Advent Next, a theological podcast curated for curious faith discussions. Today we have a fabulous show that I cannot wait to share with you. We talk about what it means to believe the best about God in the face of opportunities to think disparaging about Him. We also tackle what it means for the people of God to be called Israel or those that fight with God. Lastly, we tackle the nature of mystery and the sin of certainty. It's a conversation we're continuing from last week, so if you haven't checked out part one, please go back and do so. You can follow our guest today on Twitter at mportman, and be sure to check out his book, Say No to God. We want to thank the Adventist Learning Community for making this program possible. If you're not already following us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, be sure to find us at the handle at AdventNext. And you can follow me at Kendra Arsnow with the next. But right now, this is at that next. And I really love this because, you know, God presents himself to be more severe than he is. And he's trusting that Moses in this instance knows him better than how he's currently acting in the moment. And that also brings to me kind of this this idea, you know, of humanity being made in the image of God and us exhibiting the range of emotions that God experiences and that emotions of themselves are not evil. And, and, and I'm saying this because I think of instances for myself where, let me turn off my phone, uh, instances of myself where I have been upset and have said things and... I've been like, you know, I'm leaving, I'm abandoning everyone, I'm running away from home. Or like, you know, the extremes that we can go to in our anger. And you would hope that the people who know you best would be like, look, I know that you're not this way. Like, so like, let's just take a moment. Let's breathe. Like, this is not who you are. Um, Let's, you know, let's talk this out. Instead of being like, you know what, that's a great idea. You should totally pack your bags and abandon everyone. Like that, you know, you, (laughs) you would hope that the people who know you are also like looking to your better nature and to see that type of relationship happening in that moment is like, it it feels very human, right? It feels almost human-like. There's also the element too, if you think about it, like, and it's a famous trope in movies where, you know, one spouse, let's imagine is, is being told on the telephone by some secret caller, you know, I need you to deliver this money. And if you don't deliver this money right, I'm going to kill your husband. But you need to keep your husband, uh, I'm sorry, I, I'm making it gendered only because uh, the last movie I saw used this trope. She has to deliver these goods in order to ensure that things are well. But then when the husband calls to like confront about why have millions of dollars been taken out of the bank account, um, you know, she lies and he, he recognizes that this does not represent her. 
And I mean, there's other versions that are more dramatic where someone will come to their spouse and say, I hate you, I always hated you, I've, I've lied to you, right? We see this in the same way with dogs, right? Like, oh, start throwing rocks at the dog, leave me, you know, don't be with me, you know. Uh, it'll make it easier if you think that uh, I'm wrong. The point is, the value that's always presented in these movies is that the individual who truly knows their spouse or truly loves understands the difference between an action and their core. And if they somehow mistake these divergent actions as their core, then they really didn't know their core, right? They, right. They, they're willing to believe practically anything. So, you know, it, it's, it's funny because it's a common, um, you know, value to believe that like someone truly knows who you are. So even like you said, if you get upset or if there are circumstances where someone has to lie to you, it, you know, the hope is you really won't believe the lie. Mm. but you'll sense that there must be a reason for why it's happening. And then you'll proceed to seek that reason. I, I love this idea. So I, I want to continue going through a couple other examples, um, you know, m maybe some Bible characters that we can get into, because there's so many applications that, that I think are applicable. And uh, I want to I see how this really kind of transforms our own relationship with God. Because when I what, what I, when I'm hearing this, and we talked a little bit yesterday, so maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but like what, what I'm hearing is like sometimes the church, if we just accept that we allow these severe images of who he is to actually be who we think that he is, and if we are, you know, by beholding we become changed, if, if by seeing these severe images of who he is and we think that's who he really is and that's who he wants us to be, we in turn will be severe human beings, right? Uh, there will be moments that we act in harshness or unlovingness because we see, well, this is how God is. And for example, you know, LGBT youth, I know a number of friends whose parents kicked them out the house um, yeah. when they were like 16 years old, right? Uh, because they came out as gay and that they were willing to let their children be homeless because they thought this was the righteous thing to do, right? And so you see these acts of severity happening in the church and because you think, well, this is what God thinks and this is what God would do. And we don't challenge that severity and say, but I think he's better than that. Um, so maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but like these are the things that I, I think about and I think that's why I think some of these concepts you're bringing are so revolutionary. What are some other examples? You know, Moses is a good one. What, what's another one? Sure. Let's. Uh, I definitely want us to to also talk in the New Testament about Jesus because you know that really helps bring home that this isn't just a Hebrew Bible phenomenon, even though that shouldn't discount anything. But nonetheless, for some, it, it, when you see Jesus doing it too, it always brings it uh, kind of home. So, but but let's take a moment more to go back a book before Exodus in Genesis. So in Genesis 32, and it's always easy to remember these stories. Genesis 32, Exodus 32. Quick, mm. quick uh, cheat sheet for those uh, watching or listening. They would be like, ah, okay. <laughs> That's where I got to go for these uh, first two texts. Right. Uh, but in Genesis 32, you have that famous story of uh, Jacob wrestling with God. Um, the word in Hebrew for wrestling actually means to get dusty. And it implies basically that you're in such a fierce physical battle with someone that you're just tossing and, and turning all through the dust. And so the dust is just flying everywhere. Mm. Um, so if it's in the mud, the mud's flying everywhere. And presumably there would have been mud because they're, the, they're by the river. Um, and so you have what is a very violent story. In the Septuagint, the word they use to describe the wrestling is the same word they use to describe dragons fighting with each other to the death. So like this is a, a real, it, like readers understood this was a very violent uh, 
you know, episode. And so Jacob in the middle of the night with the stranger, this man, uh, must have thoughts of, I might not survive the night. Uh, mm-hmm. And that this is, this is definitely a, a possibility of death coming on me. So the fact that it's at night probably suggests, right, that that's the reason he's called the man. Jacob has no idea who he is. But then as the light of the day comes and God goes ahead and says, you got to let me go. You got to let me go because the sun is rising. Something happens. He speaks. Jacob speaks for the first time and he says, I'm not going to let you go unless you give me a blessing. Hmm. Now, when you first hear that, you can think potentially like, okay, so what? Is he just finding his self-serving interest? Is he just saying, all right, you know, I want to get something out of this night. You know, I'm not, I'm going to get my goods out of this. But really, it's deeper than that, because as soon as he notices it's God, there's two things that present themselves. One is, uh, you know, he could say, thy will be done, back down and say, Lord, if you think that I've done something that deserves this, then so be it. Right? Mm. He does not do that. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, Job, nothing I did deserved this, and I'm not going to sit down and take it. Um, right. So he stands his ground. Uh, doesn't let God's authority bother him and the fact that God clearly had a will to attack him. He could care less. But demanding a blessing is interesting because, of course, what had God promised Jacob? What had God's relationship been with Jacob and, and his ancestors with Abraham? It had been, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you as I promised Abraham. I'm going to continue to s- succeed and make you good. I, I am this God who cares about you. The moment he sees God attacking him, right, it doesn't call it a curse, but it's clearly the opposite of a blessing, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's, it's a non-blessing and a deathly non-blessing. So whatever language we want to, uh, you know, extra biblically describe that as, uh, we can at least say it's a bad thing. Uh, so what ends up happening then is we're looking at Jacob asking God not for something selfishly, but in a sense beseeching God to give him what God is. I don't want you to leave me because if you leave me, I will only think you came here in order to hurt me and I fought you off, Mm. right? I want a blessing because that's what you are. It's what you promised. And if I have that, then I'm confirming I know who you are. Mm. This is not you. So what then does God end up giving as the blessing? God says, your name will no longer be Jacob, it will be Israel, for you have fought God and you have prevailed, won, Mm. overcome. Lots of different ways you can can translate that ending there, but in the Hebrew it means you won, not God. Mm. That's the literal meaning. God didn't do it, you did. But then what does the name Israel mean, right? The God fighter. So then this becomes this fascinating paradox in which God attacks and fights Jacob. Jacob demands that he gets a blessing, that God show himself as the blessing he was. And then what he gets as a blessing is you are the one who fights God. Your people will be the ones who fight God. And this is what I want. Wow. Right? Like, so then you start to, again, like Exodus 32, go, this seems like a test. Like, this seems like this is not something God is changing with. This is something God is instigating. God is, is like provoking. Uh, and so that yeah. begins to open up all kinds of interesting realities. But especially important is that this is the name of the people of God. Right? Mm-hmm. This is not, oh, stubborn Israel, they're always fighting God. This is God wants you to be fighters. And in the context of Genesis 32, it seems that 
what it's saying is that God wants people to care enough about who his true identity is that they will always seek a blessing in opposition to what looks like a sort of negative view of God. That the people mm -hmm. of Israel are those who are going to constantly fight against bad images of God to assert better ones. So, Mind-blowing yeah. moment right there. Because I, it, I think that's so, like, I think that's so revolutionary. Because here, here's Jacob who just had his hip broken, right? And it's like, if he were to let go of God in that moment, God would just be the guy who broke my hip, right? And if he would have not continued to press past that moment of pain and say, give me a blessing because I know that's who you are, you're not the guy who just comes in and breaks my hip. Like, I have to see a better version of who you are. I cannot stop here. And that's so powerful because he does get it. He does get the blessing. And on top of that, the blessing is that he gets a better image of who God is that he's not just the guy who comes and breaks your hip. He's the guy who's coming and there might be adversity, but he's not going to leave you there. I think that's just such a powerful image. And, and it's really important to recognize, right, that this is the name of the people of God. This is not a minor text, right? Sometimes yeah. people will look at the Exodus 32 story and go, oh, well, you know, it's just, it's just an episode. This is not just an episode in Jacob's life. This is the defining moment of Israel's identity. So this isn't something Christians can just brush off as one of the oddities in the Old Testament. It's like, no, no, this is one of those core texts. Like, you're going to have to wrestle with this one. Yeah. And one of the things I argue in the book, right, is that this actually seems to connect with Adam and Eve's story. Because mm -hmm. you have, with Adam and Eve, a tale that's typically kind of boiled down to God ordered you to do something, you didn't do it, so now you're punished. And so it's constantly mm -hmm. used by authoritarians or, or evangelicals with inerrancy to sort of constantly tell people you don't want to be like Eve, which then becomes sort of sexist because the text says Adam is with Eve, but they always seem to forget, people in general seem to forget that little line there in the text. But it's like, oh, don't be like those early humans who thought that they should argue with God. So the, the message of the story is usually thought or used as sort of a way to tell people just do whatever God says. You're like the serpent or you're like the early humans. If you question God, you don't do what he tells you. But the problem is, and this often gets to the point of where people think the sin was. Like they'll say, okay, well, the sin isn't just that there was disobedience. It's that they went to the tree. They right. questioned. They, they, they investigated. These are all negative things. You shouldn't do them. But the truth mm. is, that's really not where the problem exists. Like, I mean, mm. questioning things is like what scholars do all the time, right? Like in order for us to know what we do believe, we have to study all the things we don't believe and why and, and understand them. That's not really the issue. The issue is, and the good question, why were Adam and Eve so eager to eat? Mm. Right? Like we don't think about that. Like there's no time limit. It's not like a TV commercial where the serpent comes on and says, in the next 30 seconds, you too can order this for the low, low price of $19.99, which will disappear within 24 hours. Right. You don't have that. They literally could take an eternity to decide to disobey God. Why did they do it the moment they were offered it? Mm. Why that fast? Why was it such a convincing offer? And the, when you start looking at what the serpent actually said as an argument, the only argument he presents, he gives claims, you'll become like God, you'll do this, right? And that might suggest that there are aspirations within Adam and Eve that we can question. But he begins it by arguing, God knows that he was lying to you. 
God mm. knows that you aren't going to die. God knows that you're going to get all this cool stuff if you eat from it, and he, thus he doesn't want you to eat from it. So there's, an ask, there's a, 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 a mischaracterization of God that's being given by the serpent that stands forefront for all the other claims. And he's basically saying, don't trust God. He doesn't have your best interests at heart. Why do Adam and Eve agree with it? And, you know, like what, are, what you'd imagine, right, if we're imagining a covenant kind of relationship between Yahweh and the first human couple, is that they're going to want to come to God and say, what's up with this? Yeah. Like, why, why is this happening? You know, what's the serpent saying, right? And then like in a traditional movie, right, um, you know, the parent starts to get uncomfortable because he knows something they don't, but he can't reveal it. So, you know, he says something cryptic that makes the kids unhappy and they're like, fine, we're going to do it anyways. You know, like they're, he's hiding something from us. So let's do it. Right? This is a classic movie trope. Right. But it strikes us odd to imagine somebody going ahead and coming and telling us something. And then we just go, oh, yeah, for sure. Now, to illustrate why this sounds so absurd for people who still don't buy it, imagine you're watching a movie in which a husband has left his wife for work, he's walking down the street, a random stranger pops in and goes, hey, your wife's cheating on you. And you're like, who the heck are you? Like, what right. are you? Huh? Well, right. Who are you? What are you talking about? You got to know your wife's cheating on you, but it's okay. What do you mean it's okay? I have some hookers over here that are available for you to get back at her with, okay? You can, you can even the playing field. If in that moment, the husband does not go, you are freaking crazy, and then run back to his wife to confront her about like, what in the world is just happening, right? Which would be what we'd expect in a loving relationship. Like, okay, I'm freaked out. I'm, I'm, I'm polarized, I'm terrorized. I have no idea what just happened to me today and I'm unhappy. But if he just was like, yeah, all right, I'm going for it, all right? And he goes, right, you'd be like, what? Like, okay, that relationship broke down a long time ago. Like, this yeah. is not this, this this is not just happening. You would not say, "Oh man, that stranger was so crafty. That stranger really deceived that husband about." <laughs> right. <laughs> You'd be right. like, "What? This is clearly an issue that was already there. All this guy is doing is, you know, just the catalyst for having an action, a consequence develop from what was already wrong." So, right. what you can clearly see is just like Ezekiel, when it's describing Adam, says that iniquity was growing and found within you, right? Mm. Adam and Eve already have this iniquity, this, this breaking of their relationship with God occurring so that it's not, they don't actually want to fight with God anymore. They're willing to accept this terrible vision of God and wow. say, yeah, you confirmed it for us. We had our suspicions. We're willing to accept it. Let's go. So then when you compare that, and so yes, I mean, disobedience, still a problem in the story. It's not like suddenly disobedience is not their problem, but it's what led to that disobedience, that, that ability of them to not care to confront God, to accept the worst image. When you then compare that with what's going on in Genesis 32, you see this sort of meta-narrative that can form in which you see God trying to reshape humanity in Israel to be the opposite of Adam and Eve. To be those who will fight, who will care enough about believing the best about God, that they won't allow this bad, negative, cursing image to be the one that remains, to accept that. Instead, they'll fight against it. They'll wrestle against it and try to seek the blessing that comes from it. So yeah. that's, that's a meta-narrative that really ends up, I think, illustrating how, again, this is not a minor theme. 
Like this is intrinsic to what God is guiding his people to do. And then, of course, that leads us into Jesus. But I don't know if you wanted to make any comment right. before we switch testaments. I, I think that this is just so powerful because I don't think I've ever heard, you know, the fact that iniquity was growing in the hearts of Adam and Eve, right? And that in this moment, uh, this was just kind of the culmination of that, right? And you're right, like the example you gave, like if somebody randomly told you something about something disparaging about someone that you loved, your boyfriend or your spouse, and, you know, for you to immediately believe them and then to act in a way that would betray them, right, without having confirmed anything with this person just goes to show that there was already this willingness to believe the worst. And I find this so personal because that is like my pet peeve, right? Like I, I hate it when people will believe the worst about me because, okay, well, you said this and so I took things to this level because, you know, I thought you were coming from this place. Well, why didn't you ask me? Right. Like, I think that's probably a couple's argument. Right. That happens a lot. Like, why did you not just couples? Also, an argument happens in workplaces. Mm. How many people have been in workplace where you made a comment uh, and then suddenly you have individuals who took your comment in a completely personal way because they're apparently traumatized in some respect to that topic. And they then start lashing out against you in passive aggressive ways that you slowly figure out are related to whatever that topic was you mentioned but make no sense. And also because they're presuming a lot of things about you without just confronting you. Like why be passive aggressive? Just ask me, right? It's yeah. not like I came to your face and I told you something. You're assuming so much. You're creating a fictional uh, you know, layer of reality to support why you're acting this way. And you know, at that point, a good question to ask, right? Like with Adam and Eve is, what's the deception? Right. Like, like, are they really deceived by the serpent or are they really deceived by themselves? Are they creating their own self-deception about God that right. because they refuse to confront it, they allow to grow and then Satan is able to use that as a catalyst for sin? You know what? That's so confirming. I think even in Patriarchs and Prophets, it says something like Satan was speaking and it sounded like an echo of Eve's own thoughts. Ooh, that's that's beautiful. Right. So it was like, this is something that must have already been growing, right? So this is, the, I, I love this, because like you said, where's the deception? It really is more of an opportunity to exercise something that was probably already in the, uh, in the middle of growing into a full fruit. And one of the things, too, that people sometimes mess up on with Adam and Eve is, like, they imagine, uh, oh, well, they couldn't reason or they couldn't do these things because they, they didn't have access to the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, right? They didn't have the knowledge. So how could they know to, to resist the serpent? Or, and it's like, this is, this is where, you know, you need a deeper reading of scripture and, and pay attention much deeper because uh, the word, when you look up the Hebrew for the knowledge of good and evil, that name is applied and used again in the books of Samuel with King David. And the thing that's said there is, uh, and it's also used in Kings, but in Samuel, it says that the knowledge of good and evil, this Hebrew word uh, or phrase, I mean, it is something that only God, the angels, and the king of Israel have. Hmm. So like, okay, does the author of Samuel seem to suggest then that like no one else in Israel has ethical behavior or right. can determine what knowledge, right? Like, no, this is beyond what is standard ethical knowledge. This is like, 
This is like maybe next level discernment or the ability to perceive realities beyond what would be a simple binary or, right? So like we can't go assuming Adam and Eve have no ability to know right from wrong or they don't understand what should have been. No, 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 they did. Like right. getting the knowledge of the good, tree of good and evil is well beyond that. It's like seeking knowledge that only the angels have, um, right. knowledge only a king could get, right? Which suggests, right, power. Right, yeah. connected with Satan saying, uh, the serpent saying, you know, do you want, uh, you'll be like the gods if you go ahead and, and eat this fruit. So there's a sense here in which, you know, there's, this is not them trying to just seek knowledge, just trying to understand the mysteries of the universe. This is wanting knowledge for power, yeah. wanting knowledge to not have to be in a relationship anymore. And, and, I, and I wonder, you know, and this is just, because I know I've done this. I know I have a, a presumed upon uh, actions, a narrative that was not true uh, because of my own maybe personal history with something, you know, like you didn't answer your phone. Well, that means that you're out cheating, right? Like I, I've, I've done this in the past. And so I know that I'm capable of assuming the worst about someone. And I wonder in this situation, like, you know, there wasn't sin that had entered into the world. And the, there, there may not have been any trauma, I'm going to assume, because sin wasn't there, so there was no trauma. And I don't want to be too blaming either, because like there has to, there's something common in, in what they did compared to what we do now. Uh, in a sinful state, probably there's a comparison even in a sinless state. And I wonder if just kind of mystery of itself, right, the fact that there are things that are unknown, kind of open up this void and this gap to kind of go either way. Right. To kind of and it's a revelation of kind of the habits of where our thoughts go, like when there's something that we don't know uh, because, you know, heaven was so great or, or sorry, earth and the Garden of Eden. There were so many mysteries maybe yet to be known to Adam and Eve that that opened up space for them either to think uh, the best uh, in kind of the questions that they had and the wonder that they had or to think the worst. Right. And that even in that space, like. Yeah, that mystery maybe is always this opportunity to, for the mind to go in one direction or the other. So, no, and, and when you think too, um, what is it that? It, and I love that you 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 honed in on the mystery theme, right? So, what is it that Adam and Eve are dis, are perhaps discomforted by not knowing something, right? Yeah. What do they seek to do in order to fix that? Gain knowledge, gain certainty, right? What did they need to be able to cultivate an ability to sit in the dark, an mm. ability to handle their doubts without immediately having an answer for them, without immediately proposing one, right? Yeah. So, you know, uh, Peter Enns has a great book, if someone hasn't read it, called The Sin of Certainty. Uh, it's a, a recommended book for anyone. It's a really great one. But, you know, it, it, it plays on this theme, right, that we, uh, we tend to want certainty so deeply and... You know, we think like, oh, no, it's the doubting that could be what's wrong. The doubts and the worries and the concerns, the darkness we're trying to avoid. But oftentimes it's certainty and our desire to get it uh, and propose it that ends up leading us into all of these many different problems. Um, you yeah. think about, um, think about uh, Thomas. You know, people label him Doubting Thomas. This is his, his eternal label by people. Uh, yeah. because of the Gospel of John's report. Although, uh, as I point out in the book uh, early on, in fact, all the disciples are said to have doubted Jesus' uh, appearance. You know, throughout all the Gospels, when you go through each one of them, uh, you, you see every single one. It's not like 
Uh, it's not unique to Thomas, but Thomas gets um, specialized focus in John because John likes to bring focus. It's sort of like John only reports that Mary was at the tomb, but when Mary speaks, she says we. So there were like other people there, but like John's only interested in focusing on the main character. Everyone else right. is blurry, right? He's not denying it. He's just not interested in bringing attention to it. Yeah. So when you look then at Thomas and people will typically go and say, oh, well, look at Thomas. He's gone ahead and doubted. You know, he's, he said, I, I won't believe unless I touch it, right? His problems doubt. He should have trusted. That's actually not really the issue. It's not that Thomas was doubting. It's that Thomas demanded something, certainty. Hmm. He didn't say, I'm going to doubt this and question it, uh, you know, until I can get an answer. He said, I will refuse to believe unless I have exactly what I need given to me. Yeah. And so oftentimes, right, religious conservatives or people who are very deeply wanting that certainty instead of being able to accept a sort of much more gray area, that's the epitome of what they're, they're saying. I have these standards. If you don't meet it, then we're not, we're not talking. Or like a, a conversation I had once with, um, with uh, an academic Adventist um, about uh, the divide between conservative and, and uh, less conservative groups of Adventists. Like, okay, here's an academic topic. It's too gray. It's too uh, questionable. So there's no need for us to even have a conversation about it. Like, like we not like, in fact, so much so that your desire to have a conversation on this would disbar you from having membership in this group. Uh, it's mm. just not uh, needed, right? Because there's a certain level of certainty that I need. And if I don't reach that certainty, there's no reason entertaining any of this. Yeah. So, right, like that, too often we end up missing the point and putting the blame on doubt when really in the Bible, oftentimes doubt is everywhere and usually quite often in a good light. Right, Job is praised at the end of the book, despite the fact that almost the entire book he's casting doubt on God. It's mm -hmm. not about the fact that you cast doubt or you have questions. It's when it comes push to shove, how do you act? How do you live? Right? Job demonstrates that at the end of the book when he prays for his friends, when he mm -hmm. still, in spite of everything, forgives and embodies who God is. Right? What matters is how you've embodied the character of God in you. The, yeah. the, the process of doubt is just inevitably uh, part of that growth. And when we try to mistake that growth for the problem, what ends up happening, we don't grow. Right. So. It's, it's, it's like, you know, Jesus said, you know, in the end of time, will there be faith, right? And I think it's that, that movement into the direction of, I don't know everything, but I'm, I'm choosing to lean in this direction. Right. And so, so yeah, I think this is, this is interesting. So you have some and New Testament. Oh, go ahead. Faith Sorry. is perfect. No, faith mm -hmm. is perfect, right? Because yeah. that's the key word, for, in fact, for the Jesus stories that deal with the same thing, is mm -hmm. faith. And, you know, what does faith mean? It, it means to have a trust, right? But what is your trust in, right? Mm -hmm. And oftentimes people think the trust is in the words. You trust that what you've heard the word said, that's what God's will is, and you'll just do it, right? Mm -hmm. But then... What trust does Moses have in Exodus 32 and Jacob has, right? It's a trust in God's character, in his revelation over time to them, in his consistency, in yeah. who God is intrinsically. It's not a trust that's simply rooted in, well, God said this, so that must settle it. I could hardly get myself to cut our conversation off at this point, but I want you to be able to spend some time with the insights from this week. So stay tuned for next week. If you think the conversation can't get better, just wait. 
If you're not already following us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, be sure to do so at Advent Next. You can follow our guest today on Twitter at M. Cortman, and be sure to check out his book, Say No to God. I appreciate all of you who have left reviews on Apple Podcasts or are engaging in the comments through YouTube. I really love hearing from you, so please keep it up. If there's any future topic you'd like me to explore, please subscribe and comment below. Otherwise, see you next week.